It happens to us all. In fact, it's happening right now as I speak. We are aging. Whether we are 80 or 8, we can't stop it. But the most dangerous stage is middle age, and in particular, for men. For middle-aged men in America are killing themselves at an ever-increasing rate. The question is why? Is it a matter of lost energy? Deferred or broken dreams? Or a diminished sense of significance? I'm Alan Campbell. Join me for Watching America. On my life, watching America All my life, it's panic in America Welcome to Watching America. I'm your host, Dr. Alan Campbell. Last year, there were 47,173 suicides in the United States. Typically, white males account for 7 out of 10 suicides, and the rate is highest with middle-aged men. Why? Well, there are many reasons, but a lost sense of vibrancy and purpose and a sense of diminished status is often attributed to these actions. Even middle-aged, supposedly successful men see themselves as unfulfilled in the realm of dreams and find it hard to dream on. Consider Robin Williams, Anthony Bourdain, and your neighbor. Indeed, welcome to Watching America. I'm your host, Dr. Alan Campbell, but I'm not the only doctor in the house. No, we have Dr. Nakita M. Sparkman-Key, and she is a fellow instructor and professor at our own beloved Old Dominion University. She's also quite qualified in so many fields and so many areas. Uh, she serves on the Counseling and Human Services Department. She's Assistant Chair of the Human Services Program and also uh, a Director there as well. Now, she's also a highly praised and uh, prized public speaker who travels to various parts of the globe. She's an international speaker. She has a great affinity for Jamaica herself, where she leads students uh, to Jamaica each year from ODU. And we are very privileged to have her in the studio with us today as we look at a very somber, serious, and most worthy topic, and that is the topic of suicide. As we said in the introduction, there is an uh, incredible amount of disparity with men in particular taking their lives, middle-aged men at that, where 70% of all suicides are related to middle-aged men. Now, our guest, her specialty and experience has been working with youth, but we will look at that and then we will transition into talking about men in their in their midlife crises uh, of the most extreme order. Dr. Key, how did you get interested in this topic? I got interested in this topic because I worked with um, vulnerable populations in Detroit. I've worked with emotionally um, challenged teens, so the term that they used back then, um, with suffering from bipolar disorder and depression. And uh, I've been working with teens for a number of years, but we've seen a increase in younger children and suicide. 
And so now, that really caught my attention. Now, you've invoked a very interesting term, vulnerable populations. Mm-hmm. And uh, for the layperson and for our f- listeners, our friends, what does vulnerable populations mean to you? Well, I can describe the populations that I work with. I've worked with sex, sex workers, um, those suffering from addictions, um, low income, uh, unemployed um, populations. Okay. Mm-hmm. Would you consider uh, middle-aged men and older men who take their lives excessively also to be part of the vulnerable population? Yes, because typically they're suffering from depression and hopelessness. Um, and it, many of them have risk factors that could be um, stress. They're maintaining, keeping everything inside because they're trying to maintain that masculine role um, in isolation. And all of those would be... Um, make them vulnerable or more susceptible to suicide. What do you think is the, uh, the the key factor? I mean, you have addressed the fact that men tend to internalize their pain. They're, they're not going to be very expressive. You get a group of men together and you say, hey, how many of us are insecure? Not a single hand will probably go up. Mm-hmm. It's it's not going to happen. Um, but if you talk about cracking a beer or something, then yeah, okay, fine. I'm a man. You're a man. Let's be men together. Right. Um, but never a man really willing to show a tear. Although there are exceptions. Um, General Arnold Schwarzkopf during the first Gulf War did a tour of the United States. Here's a four-star general. And he would quite openly express his depression and sadness with tears in groups uh, and arenas, sometimes with thousands and thousands of people there. As a professional yourself, how often, in your experience, do you encounter males who are willing to be that vulnerable? How often? Not very often at all. I'm trying to think to see who has cried um, that I've witnessed. I've witnessed my father cry. more recently, later in life. Um, But other than that, men, even those that are really going through some serious challenges, Mm. that you would want to cry for them because you can feel their pain. I've never seen them cry. You work with young people. Have you noted, is there still this uh, stigma with little boys being able to cry versus little girls? Have you seen that displayed or do you think that that's now pretty much been dispensed with? No, um, it's it's still displayed. Um, Typically, if boys are feeling the verge of crying or something, they're trying to hide their face. They don't want people to see them. They are combating it with anger instead of letting people see that they're really emotion, that they want to cry. Um, They're leaving the rooms because there's still some shame surrounding um, that having that kind of emotion. You know, men don't cry. We have a success of a strange order in the African-American community because compared to white males, we don't have the same suicide rate. Now, obviously, any African-American man taking his life is one too many. Mm -hmm. But evidently, at least in this regard, African-American males are able to handle and deal with some emotional constraints and issues that their white counterparts aren't able to do. Mm -hmm. How is that? I think it's because of uh, history of being able to being born as a minority within a minority population and having to deal with so many different things and you were born into it. So at a very young age, you've learned to tolerate, um, you've learned to cope, um, you've learned some other skills that once you endure some other tragic situations, you already invoke on those skills to kind of deal with them. Now, that's interesting because what you're implying, or at least I'm inferring, is that people of minority status, African-Americans and males, don't expect things to go great. 
They don't. So they don't have the same uh, visceral reaction, perhaps, to failure or to uh, headaches or mistakes or, or things which impinge on the quality of their life. So they, they, they go with a greater stride, would you say? I would say they they immediately expect for something to not be so perfect. They don't have the expectation that so they would be in, in handed a, a spoon, a silver spoon. Right. So in a right. good way, their expectations are lower. Yes. Okay. But how do we account then for, for the fact that there are males, though, white males, who are not necessarily successful, who are not necessarily wealthy and what have you, and still there's this propensity for them to be more inclined to want to kill themselves than minority persons? Mm-hmm. Well, researchers account for it going back to masculinity, that whole pressure of having to suffer in silence, in that isolation, and and because of that, they can no longer deal with those issues. So typically, they don't get any help or have even spoken to anyone about what they're feeling, and so therefore, they commit suicide without any sort of um, consultation, messaging. I'm going to go back and mention, invoke a name of somebody which we haven't talked about for for a while, and that is the late comedian Joan Rivers. Can we talk? Can we talk? Remember her? Yes. And so we had Joan Rivers. She had an English husband called Edgar, who was her, her manager. She, at one point, had a program with Fox, and Edgar was allowed to be the executive producer. And then Fox Network said, this is years ago, no, we don't want Edgar. Edgar went home. Edgar killed himself. Joan Rivers referenced that and spoke about it. Uh, far afield, but not so far afield, we have Robin Williams. He was a very gregarious, outgoing person, but we also knew that there was this shadow self, if you will, uh, of, of depression and loneliness, mm-hmm. and he wound up taking his life. Mm-hmm. How do you account for men who, even on a large scale, seem to have s- setbacks who would kill themselves, and why in such violent ways, by the way? Now, it's not the case with Robin Williams, but we do know that men will yes. choose more violent methods to kill themselves than women. Yes. Why is that? I think with men, they, they want to make sure that they get it done. And that is and and that's been proven. They are more successful in their first attempt. Um, but also men internalize the feelings that they have even in a workplace. And some key indicators, like what you said with Robin Williams, that he had this other self where he was isolated. Probably lonely. Well, you'd had a, a series on... The, uh, one of the things you don't normally want to do, unless you're going on Netflix, if you're in the entertainment industry, is you go from television to movies. Yay, great. So he went from Mork and Mindy television. Then he was extremely overexposed for about 10 years of just a slew of movies, one after the other coming. And then his, if you will, his stock in being able to, to attract an audience began to drop. And then he went back to doing television and he did a CBS television series, which didn't succeed and it really knocked him out. Now, he also had physical issues, and but he took his life. And here's this, you know, this v- v- vibrant personality uh, who seems to channel all kinds of uh, uh, characters and, and personalities at will. And then in privately, um, he decides he has to exit. But he was extremely successful. Yeah. Extremely successful. Yes. And then when that success seemed to be on the decline, he couldn't handle handle not having that success or that level of success. Dr. Key, is the problem that we want too much? Is that part of it? Is it that we expect too much? 
I think different people expect different things, and it's all up to the individual. Um, so if we were talking about suicide and youth, we would be talking about relationships and how much they value relationships. We're talking about success and how adults value success. And this individual valued success a lot, so much that he could not handle not being successful. We had spoken about the violent choices that very often, but not always, but very often that males will make for suicide versus women. There seems to be, even at the brunt of death, you have women who don't like the idea of disfiguring themselves. I mean, that's the nasty part of it, or the messiness of it. Mm -hmm. Um, So isn't that curious that men will not care about that so much, but women are, are much more conscious, even in in the purposes of imminent death, to think of their image? Mm -hmm. Well, I think women are are into the little details. And so you will often see when you start looking at case studies of women who have committed suicide or died by suicide, that they have arranged, put their things back where they belong. They've arranged the setting. They've put everything back as if they were preparing to exit. Whereas um, men is impulse. We see a lot of uh, impulse. Speaking of vulnerable um, populations that you've spoken of, um, one of the things we know with college students, for instance, even with college students, it is Caucasian, largely white, male college students that would take their life in much higher numbers than minority students or females. Mm -hmm. And yet it would seem that this is a, a, a... blatantly ignored factor. You and I both work at a college campus, Old Dominion University, a fine, prestigious university. We have a women's center. I've taught at other universities, I'm sure you have too. Uh, I've taught in California and lectured in various places around the world. In the United States, every college campus has a women's center. Can you tell me where the men's centers are, please? There's crickets. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> <laughs> I love it. Yeah, there's crickets, exactly. Mm-hmm. I, 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 at one university, I won't say which one it was because I don't want to offend people at Christopher Newport uh, University. <laughs> um, but at one university uh, I went to, I asked, I said, where's the men's center? And, said, and, the, and the person said, well, we don't need a men's center. We got a, a women's center, and if people want to, uh, men want to go to it, they're welcome. Well, the whole charter behind women's centers, for instance, like I know at ODU, it was established in 1976. Mm-hmm. So we are coming up now on approaching a, a, a half century of a women's institution being there. And I rejoice in that, Gray. I wouldn't want to take it away from women. Mm-hmm. But there's no counterpart for men. And men suffer more severely with depression. Men uh, who go to college have more adversity than females. And the original intent, as you know, mm-hmm. for these women's centers was to encourage women to go. You're in the classroom. I'm yes. in the classroom, yes. and we know, what is it, 60-40, yes. universally across America, women. women. Mm-hmm. Um, when do you think people might start to say, you know, there is one vulnerable population that we're ignoring here? True. Uh, there's no doubt about it that we do not have something dedicated just for men. But then also there's this notion of would men actually go to a center that's for men to Ooh, help them uh, address those uh, issues uh, because uh, uh, research. Uh, Dr. Key, <laughs> Dr. Key, I got to ask you this question. Okay. I mean, imagine if the roles were reversed. Okay. You yeah. were advocating for a women's center. And I said to you, well, first of all, we don't know if women would really go. I mean, we shouldn't even experiment by putting the money in there. And, you know, I mean, they'd probably just be happy at the, you know, what would you say to me? Right. 
I would say you're full of it. <laughs> <laughs> so I do I do think that there is room for it, that we need a men's center. But when we look at the research, they said that men don't go readily and seek help from people that they don't know. And so would this men's center be filled with um, people that but we have to the men the- already know? Well, maybe not, but we have to change the culture. We I mean, would. you know, but I think unless we're trying to make some, you know, inroads in, into that regard, it's not going to happen. One thing that we need to stress is that there needs to be a cultural shift, especially for men. And that is, you know, that it is masculine to seek help, it's masculine to cry, it's masculine to get all the services you need to be happy and healthy, um, that you don't have to suffer in silence. That's what we need, whether it's through a men's center, through talks like this, um, that we need that cultural shift. Ladies and gentlemen, you've been listening to Watching America, and my first guest today has been Dr. Narkita M. Sparkman-Key. I want to thank you so very, very much for your insights and being a part of this program, and moreover, you have enriched our community and continue to do that, and we are so grateful, Dr. Key. Thank you. Thank you for having me. It's been a pleasure. This is Watching America. When we return, we will hear from Sergeant Kevin Briggs, who became a specialist in suicide intervention after saving lives on the Golden Gate Bridge for over two decades as a California highway patrolman. The loveliness of uh, There's multiple calls of uh, people stating that they did CC into the body. Universe Hendo Kosu call possible 10 suicide 9864 Station 26 is advising that they had report of something that might be related. I'm going home. When Kevin Briggs left the army, He thought about his friend, his friend in particular, who was interested in working for the California Highway Patrol. Almost as a lark, he decided to go along with his friend to at least investigate to see what the academy would be about. He found to his surprise that he was most interested and enlisted, but none of his training could adequately prepare him for the life that would ensue, because his life would entail saving lives. Assigned as a patrolman on the Golden Gate Bridge, Sergeant Briggs discovered that he would be called upon to intervene and to persuade potential suicide jumpers to reconsider the value of their own lives. Now known affectionately, As the guardian of the Golden Gate Bridge, Sergeant Kevin Briggs has been featured in The New Yorker, People Magazine, and on The Steve Harvey Show. And I am most happy to say, now on Watching America.
Indeed, the golden sun does shine, but even those of us on a sunny day can feel the, well, the detriment of rain, rain in our souls. And nobody knows better than Kevin Briggs, that Sergeant Kevin Briggs. Kevin, if I may call you that. Yes, sir. Very few little boys grow up wanting to be rescuers from people trying to commit suicide on a bridge. They may, in fact, want to grow up to be police officers but not somebody who envisions themselves uh, sparing other people's lives. How did it come about? How did this happen? You know, really, I didn't know what I was stepping into when I went to the Marin area of the Highway Patrol, which handles the Golden Gate Bridge, traveling into San Francisco. It was just another beat. And I, I didn't realize why officers didn't want to work down there so much. But I had no idea, even growing up in Marin County, uh, the number of suicides off of the Golden Gate Bridge. I didn't know what I was stepping into, and I soon realized it, that's for sure. Uh, do you suppose that the Golden Gate Bridge is used uh, because of its beauty? I mean, there's, there's nothing more arresting than going across that bridge and seeing its beautiful form. It's glorious, the two towers, the North Tower and the South Tower. Do you suppose people choose that site out of a misplaced macabre romanticism? The, the, the last act, if you will, the, 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 final, the final act, and you say, well, if I'm going out, I'm going out in style. Do you think that plays into it? You know, I think it does for folks. Not there's the whole gamut of reasons. Um, I remember talking to an individual who came all the way from New Jersey, and he jumped. I spoke to him for about an hour, and he did jump, but I asked him, well, why this bridge? Why come from all the way from New Jersey? And what he told me was, it'll get the job done. And he was very coherent and a, a very nice young man just going through a very difficult time and had been for for quite some time but you know his thing was it'll get the job done and unfortunately it did but there's a whole host of reasons why and some are exactly what you said what are some of the other reasons that you've discerned over the years uh some of it has been just an immediate crisis state and i've seen people that have driven across the bridge got to the other side um parked their car got out and jumped and they had a reason to be traveling across the bridge. I had one young man who was just 22 years old. He left his mother's home up here uh, in Sonoma County, north of the bridge, was traveling down to see his father in San Francisco, going to go to a baseball game, a Giants game. He had reason. He had purpose. And he drove across the bridge, parked, got out, and without hesitation, jumped. So sometimes it's just that crisis state, something that comes up with folks. So uh, there are persons who just, in in the severity of the moment, see it as a viable option and will park the car and just jump. Yes. And, you know, many of these folks have been suffering for years, but all of a sudden, because time and place, they feel it's the right thing to do. There must have been the first incident that you um, experienced somebody threatening to jump. Can you tell us a little bit about that? Sure. Yeah, my first call many, many years ago um, Younger lady, I believe mid-20s, and I received a call, responded, and when I got there, I, I didn't know 
what to do. I had no training in this. And I think I kind of rushed up to her. And my thought was, really, she's standing over this pedestrian rail onto what we call the cord, C-H-O-R-D, over the rail. And I look at her and I go, my thought was, what are you doing? You're going to get hurt. Um, and then just to try to, to talk to her, I didn't know what to say. I'm thinking if I say the wrong thing, she's going to jump because what I said. So it was, it was really, really tough. We spoke for, for some time. She did come back, but I think, you know, part of me says she came back because of the empathy for me. She goes, look at this guy. It's horrible. I don't want to do this to him. It was tough. You've raised an important point already, and, and, and that is this, uh, this sense of responsibility. I mean, uh, essentially, and this is true of, of many cases of suicide, not even the dramatic extreme cases of the Golden Gate Bridge, this idea of to what extent are we culpable, to what extent are we responsible. Um, when you had your first incident where somebody did jump, and I think to date you've had two jumpers in, in all of the persons that you've counseled, when the first person jumped, even though you know, cognizantly, rationally, Kevin, that you're not responsible for that. Did you still walk away psychologically marred in any capacity as a result of witnessing that? Absolutely, 100%, and I still am to this day. Uh, and I you know deep down that when it gets to that level, when someone's over the rail, it's very, very difficult to get them to come back. And this gentleman... Um, he actually shook my hand three times when we were speaking, and and he wouldn't provide me with a lot of details, but he was not under the influence of anything, very coherent, just looked like the average Joe out here. And on the last time he shook my hand, he said, thank you, Kevin, for everything, but I have to go. My grandmother's down there, and his grandmother had passed sometime, and he jumped, and it breaks your heart, and I'm thinking, you know, it just it replays in my mind even today. What could I have done different? What could I have said? What could I have done? Um, it hurts. It really does. You know, deep down that that it's so difficult once they get to that level. But still, you know, what could I have done different? And I think, as what I know, a so-called negotiator, um, we always do that. We question ourselves. I think we've all seen old 1970 TV series, detective series, and uh, if it's not the Golden Gate Bridge, it's supposedly the Brooklyn Bridge or the 20th floor of a building, where you have the officer who says something along the lines of, Come on, Lebrowski, you know you don't want to do it. Come on, you got your family to live for, your kids and everything. You don't need to do this. And there's this sullen moment where the person realizes what they've done, and appropriately they walk in, and, and, and certainly the officer's a hero. But when it does go awry, and you have touched somebody, touched hand, glance, skin, three times, and then they go over. Do you review in your mind, you know, what if I just held on to that hand on one occasion and, and pulled back? Um, the officers in these cinematic versions seem quite glib at times. But for you, it's a reality. What do you uh, process after someone has done that? And you do think about that. But I have set a rule for myself, and I teach that to others when I was still with the patrol, uh, not to grab these folks when they're over the rail. And there's a, there's a couple of reasons why, really. One, I think it's very, very important for them to come back on their own. If we grab them, we have the risk of getting pulled over ourselves. But to get them to come back, to want to live, I call it a rebirth when they come back over on their own. That takes a lot of courage to do that. 
it takes a lot of courage to end your life. People think it's, a, it's an easy way out. It's a selfish thing to do to end their life. I will tell you, folks don't want to die. For the most part, they want to live. They just can't see past what's going on in their lives at the time and what's been going on with their life. So to get them to come back over on their own takes a hell of a lot of courage. And I always congratulate them after that. You know, it's very, very difficult. But that's the main thing is we don't want to get pulled over. And I want them to come back on their own because it takes a whole lot of courage. And I think that's the courage they're going to need to continue on and, and strive to get better. Kevin, uh, you said something very interesting. You, you almost used religious terms. You said you consider them being born again when they come over the uh, over the fence. Uh, with that said, not necessarily uh, concluding religious strong belief in your part, but do you ever feel that you have had divine encounters of a sort with the people on the bridge? And how much does religion come into it, or do you try and stay clear of that? What has been your self-perception as far as being used, perhaps uh, divinely, to convince people not to end their lives? You know, the first thing I do when I get one of these calls is to say a little prayer for this whole event to go well. And when I get down there, um, I generally don't talk about religion unless that individual brings it up. And then we can, we can talk about as much as they like. But it, I think it plays a role for me. I think God is, is helping me out tremendously to go up and to talk to these folks. For me, it plays a lot. Um, like I said, I don't generally talk about it much with folks over the rail or anywhere around talking to someone, unless they bring it up and they want to talk about it. When you're talking to these people, does it feel somewhat like a, a psychological Jenga tower, where if you pull the wrong piece out, the whole thing's going to topple? Uh, how, do you, how do you proceed? Okay, so let's go through the scenario. Um, I'll just make something up. You have, uh, let's say, a 55-year-old male, white male. We do know that more than 70% of the people uh, that you have helped have been white males. And you have a 55-year-old white male. What is your initial approach? What I try to do is walk up and stay about 10, 15 feet back and introduce myself with an open hand and say, Hi, I'm Kevin. They can see I'm in a uniform. I'm someone of authority. Or I'll say, I'm Kevin with the Highway Patrol. Is it okay if I come up and speak with you for a while? I want their permission because I think when you're in that state of mind, over the rail, that you've been down for quite some time, and to have an officer walk up and ask your permission for something, I think that sets a good tone mm -hmm. for the whole event. Mm -hmm. And what I want to do after that is personalize everything. So I'm not Sergeant Kevin Richard Briggs with the California Highway Patrol. Not at all. I'm just Kevin. And I would want to get their first name. And if they allow me to say, Bob, okay, I'm Kevin, and I'm just going to personalize everything that I can. Do you have the other officers stay back? I mean, are, are you the only patrol car there? Or do you have others that are in the vicinity and uh, you give them, you know, stay back signal of some sort and you handle it? Or are there other vehicles that um, are visible to the person on the bridge? There'll be other vehicles. We typically keep the bridge open but we'll take one of the lanes. Um, and there are other officers holding the pedestrians back so there's no one really close to that person. But it depends on, on who gets there and who's handling. If I'm, if I'm the one to get there and handle it, fine. If, it fine. if I find out that, you know what, I'm not connecting with this person, here's where ego comes in. And that's a big one with, with everybody and everything I say. Ego. 
I need to be able to step back and get someone else in there who can talk to that person, who they connect with. That's the big thing with this is making a connection. So this is not the Kevin Briggs show to where, oh, you know, Kevin Briggs, he saved or helped all these people. Got to be me. No, we're going to get someone in there who can connect with that person. I don't, I don't use the word save. I don't think I've ever saved anybody. I didn't run into a burning building. But I, I was there for a very dark time and, and helped them pass that. I appreciate your, your humility, and I, and I sense it's genuine, as I'm sure all of our listeners do as well. But aren't you doing yourself a tremendous disservice? I mean, you are saving people's lives. Well, I, I look at it more as, as helping them. And, you know, it's not about me. It's all about them. What I find when folks, folks start talking more of I, everything starts with I, now it's about you. So it's, it's not, like I said, the Kevin Briggs show. It's whoever can help that person pass that time and get them back over the rail. When we do that, now we've succeeded. Did you find yourself getting better at this by the time you had your 10th experience versus, uh, you know, your 50th? Do, do you just improve or do you never have that assuredness? I did improve. And what I would do each and every single time was when that person came back over the rail, before we went anywhere, I would congratulate them and I would ask them, what did I do? that helped this situation, and what did I do or say that hurt this situation? Because I wanted to learn. I did this up until the time I retired. I wanted to learn off of each and every person so I could become better. And when asked to go teach and talk about these circumstances, and, and I wanted to be able to show folks this is what, you know, right from the people who did this, this is what helped. What is the typical profile of, of the people you encountered? I mean, uh, nobody is, classically speaking, typical but on average, what were the circumstances and, and the moods of the people? I mean, it, again, our only experience is cinematic. So you get some people who look virtually catatonic and don't respond to the cops in, in old movies from the 70s and the 80s. Is that realistic? Did you ever encounter people like that who were just totally, completely non-responsive? Yes, and those are very difficult because we can't find out what's going on, and, and it's difficult to talk to them. It's like they're just waiting it out until they get enough courage jump. So it makes it very, very difficult if they're not going to talk to us. But uh, like you said in the beginning of the show, middle-aged white males, predominantly. That's, that's what we see. Sometimes they're very sure of themselves. They know what they want to do. So my job, that makes it even harder to get up there and try to talk to them, get them to think and turn their thinking around. Uh, we do get the ones that are under the influence of alcohol or drugs. And you know we get that liquid courage that seems to, to help them want to make up their mind. But also, we, we use that to say, you know what, if you were going to do this act, wouldn't you want to do it when you're sober? So there's things that we use to, to turn that around. But for the most part, they, they will talk, some more than others, but they're, it looks like they're just ready to go. They're tired. You know, they feel helpless and hopeless. So our job is to provide some hope, some real hope. We've had some, uh, some interesting celebrity experiences uh, with the Golden Gate Bridge. I used to live in San Francisco for 11 years. I lived in Mill Valley across the, um, the, the bridge itself in Marin County. I remember when Woody Harrelson um, locked himself or tied himself to the bridge uh, in protest of what I cannot recall at, at, at this moment. But do you find that kind of public spectacle um, menacing to the very type of work that you're trying to uh, avoid having to do? You know, that does, especially being a traffic officer at that point. That I remember that day. I wasn't working that day, but he tied up a lot of traffic and made a lot of people angry. Um, 
there's other ways of doing that. You know, that that sort of incident where you, you get onto onto the bridge and, and try to do something. Um, we're just looking for good support out there to keep the traffic flowing. If people are hurting, you know, we, we want to get to them way before that. And that's my job now through my organization is to get to folks long before they they decide to put the gun to their head or go up to a bridge. That's what we need to do. You are listening to Watching America. We will continue with our conversation with Sergeant Kevin Briggs after this break. I'm your host, Alan Campbell, and we're talking to Sergeant Kevin Briggs, who is a former uh, CHIPS officer, as they used to say, uh, working for the California Highway Patrol. And he's not Eric Estrada. He's a man far more significant, even though he has great humility, talking about his experience. Um, he would defer and would not like to use the term saving 200 lives, but that's in fact what he has done. I will say it for him. Save 200 lives of people uh, who have entertained the idea and deliberately planned to kill themselves by jumping from such a height uh, off the Golden Gate Bridge. I think most people don't realize, Kevin, just how high the bridge is, because when you see it in, in film, it's not adequate. I mean, you can put a complete aircraft carrier underneath the Golden Gate Bridge and uh, lose it. And I don't mean by the fog, but you can just, uh, it, it dwarfs. It is such a high platform to descend from. Would you mind describe exactly what it is like when you hit that water? Well, the roadway is around 220 feet above the water. So, in talking with the coroner, they said that, that a body would travel about 75 miles an hour, four to five seconds. And, you know, when you hit that water, um, it's, a, it's a huge splash that comes up. And it's terrible. It, it really, really is to, to watch that. And then I have seen with a number of folks, even though I have lost, Two, I've been there for many others when other people have been speaking to them. And, you know, when they hit, they create this huge splash and foam, and it takes a while for the individual to come back up. Sometimes they're still alive. They did survive it. But because they break so many bones and arms and legs and, and ribs that, you know, go into the liver and all these things that a lot of times they drown after that. People think it's a very easy way to go. And once you jump, you fly through the air and, you know, you hit and you're done. I can tell you it's not that way. It's a horrible way to go, and there's so many people affected by that. I've, I've heard that the ribs literally split, splinter uh, and break up, and the vertebrae collapses. That can happen, absolutely. You know, it punctures the lung, liver, and different things. It, it's horrible. But it is conceivable, however unwelcomed, that somebody in our audience one day may encounter somebody who is wanting to take their life in a public fashion, or maybe not so public fashion. What is your advice how do we handle it? If you had to give us just a short encapsulation of the most important, valuable aspects to hope that others will not take their lives, what do we do? Try to stall them. Have someone get on 911 and get some professional help out there. In the meantime, use your name. Try to stall them. Find out. Try to find out what, really what's going on with them. Wow, you know, I, I can't understand what you're going through, but I'd like to understand what's been happening and how it led to this. I'm here for you. I am going to be here for you. I'm not leaving. So is, I just want to talk. Is is conversation the best stalling mechanism? Absolutely. Yes, it is. Not saying that you really understand what they're going through, but I want to try to understand what's happening with you. 
don't compare any situations just by saying, you know what, that must be really tough. That sounds really tough. How many times do you resort to calling next of kin? Because that's another scenario that we see in films all the time where they say, you know, get Michael's father or somebody and uh, a family member speaks. Is it actually possibly more impacting to have somebody who's not a family member's counsel or speak to a person impromptu at the moment versus a family person? What's your opinion on that? Uh, it's tough bringing a family or friend in on this because you don't know what is what they're going to say and what the individual who's in crisis is going to say. Uh, you know, maybe they're coming up so that person can, can tell them goodbye, where at them and everything else. You cause this and then jump. We don't know that. So most of the time we'll, we'll stay away from that. Okay, so there's a high risk it. of it exacerbating the situation and making it far worse. Yes. There's two questions I want to ask you, and one's personal, and you don't have to respond. Has this kind of work affected your personal relationships with people? I mean, you know, we always hear the story about the officers who invariably have to bring the work home. They don't mean to, they don't intend to, but how can you not have that impact you when you see somebody you've just held hands with or, or shook hands with go plummeting to their demise? Has it affected you in your personal life with relationships? I would say yes. You know, I'm, I'm more guarded. Of course, it comes home with you. How could you see someone, you know, jump off the bridge or in car accidents or the other things that, that we see, the different things, and not impact you? Um, police officers, firemen, first responders, we see things that you're not supposed to see, really. And and it does impact you. Um, I do suffer from depression. I'm taking a couple of different medications for it. And I've been through some therapy, which has really helped. But I was this macho type that was in the Army that worked at San Quentin and then in the, in the, with the Highway Patrol, that it's almost you weren't allowed to show a weakness. So we don't go to therapy. And all these things that we really should be doing for, for our own good, we don't do. Sometimes it goes too late. So these things are going to affect But there is a hope for us. And there is therapy and different things that we can do to help us out so we can reach retirement and have a, a great life after this job. Kevin, a very difficult question, but I feel that you will be able to respond to this. Have you ever found your time, found yourself at times identifying greatly with the person who is considering taking their lives? Not just yes. Okay, did it scare you? It does because I'm being on the other side of the road. You wonder what could I say if I was in that situation. What could they, this person has lost everything, um, and whatever they've done, you think, wow, if I was in that situation, you know, I would be on this bridge over that rail. These folks, um, it's tough. It's very, very difficult. So to try to have that empathy, to put yourself in their shoes, I think that helps. But you got to know when to pull back also. Otherwise, it affects you too much, and will, it will affect how you do your job. It sounds to me that you're saying that the key thing is to find your humanity, to find your spirit, to find who you really are. And by that stature, it would seem to me that you would have really become a much better officer for your depression. Not that anyone would want to invite that depression into their life, but uh, you know, every minus has a, has a bonus to it. And it seems as though that would be a component um, that has strangely been of benefit. Would you agree? I would. I, I, wouldn't, I wouldn't want to put this on anybody because suffering from depression 
and it still does. You have your, your good and your bad days. There's times still that I get where I'll spend three days inside my house. You just don't feel like going out. Sometimes you don't want to get up. But the big, big deal with this, I know it's going to pass. And it does. So that and recognizing the need to get help that is bigger than you. You go around the country, you speak, you're uh, a very desired uh, presenter talking about suicide. Do you share your own struggles with, with people? I mean, because I would think that that would be the key thing that actually ironically gives hope. I mean, in my experience with talking to all manner of persons, uh, both in broadcasting and in, in, in private, the key thing is the recognition of the weakness. And in the recognition of the weakness comes the strength. Uh, I couldn't agree with you more. You know, I talked about when I was in the Army, I had cancer, a testicular cancer. And I turned 21 in the hospital. And the head injuries that I sustained, and, and I had some heart surgeries, three stents in my heart, all these different things. But how do we get past all that? And how can we help ourselves? And really, how can we help others? So you're absolutely right. Um, leading by example and telling these stories that have really got me to this, where I'm at now, to be able to go out and talk to folks. That is what it's about. And in 2017, we lost over 47,000 people suicides. That's a lot of people. We, we lost over 17,000 to homicides, over 40,000 to traffic accidents, collisions, but 47,000 to suicides. What can folks do? Well, what can folks do? You know, there's classes out there for QPR, question, persuade, refer. There's a lot of different things. You can go online to the National Alliance on Mental Illness or American Foundation for Suicide Prevention to be able to learn how to have this courageous, what I call courageous conversation with folks. Because how many times have we all heard, wow, well, I knew they were going through a tough time, but I didn't think they'd do that. Well, what if they were able to have that conversation and be there for those folks? And that's a really big one that I stress and talk about in my talks, is to be able to walk up to someone and go, you know what? This is what I've seen or what I've heard. I want to let you know that I'm here for you. I'd like to go down and have the conversation with you. And what can we do? What do we say? What do we not say? So that's the, the really big stuff that's going to help out. And what's the thing not to say? Not to say to them is, I understand completely what you're going through. I've been through similar circumstances. You know, don't compare your situation, um, things like that. And to just offer to be there for them. You can call me 24 hours a day. I'm here for you. So be careful of what's coming out of your mouth. Don't worry about being silent because you run out of things to say. Sometimes just being there for that individual is fantastic and what they need. We've invoked the term romantic, speaking of the bridge and the location, but romance can actually lead to people wanting to kill themselves and the belief that they'll never get over the loss of a love. How much of that did you encounter with people on the bridge versus perhaps loss of a business or some other factor? I think that, that you're right with that. But it is, you know, so there's the financial reasons why a lot of it is, it is they've been suffering for a long time. Maybe it's drug or alcohol abuse, the helplessness, the hopelessness. Nobody, they think nobody's in their corner and wanting to talk to them about it. So they feel alone. And that's a big one is isolation. What is the youngest person you've ever seen on the bridge? I think it was 13. How do you deal with the 13-year-old who hasn't even begun to shave? You know, that is so difficult, but what I try to do for me and, and what I tell the other officers is, yeah, it's difficult for us. Think about the family. Think about the parents. Absolutely brutal. But on the other hand of that, 
think about how many people, if we can get to someone, most of the time when we're speaking, they will come back over. So when we do lose someone, it breaks our heart and it, you know, it's there forever with us. But think about those that you have helped and that helps us come back and do this the next day. Thank you so very, very much. Uh, God bless you, sir. Um, you are part of America's finest, and we are so grateful. Kevin Briggs, Sergeant Kevin Briggs, who has probably one of the most extreme and voluminous experiences working with saving lives. He won't say it, I'll say it for him. Over 200 people, and in that count, uh, a loss of two, which is still, I'm sure you would argue, too many. But um, in a tally, one day, in eternity, uh, it's going to rack up high, and I think you're going to be told, well done. Thank you, Sergeant Briggs. You might have been listening to this program and saying to yourself, this is all well and good, but it's rather abstract and academic. I'm in need. I'm one of the very people they're talking about. With that in mind, in a few moments, I'm going to provide an important phone number. A number that you can dial 24 hours a day to receive help if you have any self-destructive or self-harming thoughts. I'd like to take this opportunity to thank my guests, Dr. Nikita M. Sparkman Key, and of course, Sergeant Kevin Briggs. And along the way, let me also thank producer Paul Bebo, senior producer and recording editor Gina Gamboni, executive producer Chuck Dowd, chief of content Heather Mazzoni, and top of the most very top, top, top is most top, Bert Schmidt. Watching America has been a WHRV radio production made in part by the kind and thoughtful contributions of listeners like you. My bank went broken, my wear ran dry It was almost enough to contemplate suicide I turned on the gas but then I soon realized I hadn't settled my bills so they cut off my supply the National Suicide Prevention Lifeline is 1-800-273-8255. That's 1-800-273-8255. I'm Dr. Alan L.C. Campbell, and you've been listening to Watching America. We hope that you'll be listening again. Until next time, take care and blessings. Please visit the Watching America podcast at whro.org to hear from storyteller Paul Currington and musician Michael Skinner. 
both of whom are survivors of suicide attempts who have learned valuable coping mechanisms to both manage depression and help others.